Hi, this is Valerie Payne, and you're listening to Finding Unity. And I'm super excited because today we have Kareem Sirajuddin on the show. He's also the founder of um, Neurohuman Consulting, and he's the host of Coffee with Kareem. Don't forget to check out Valerie's podcast on iTunes today. It's called Finding Unity. She is also a therapist and interviews a variety of very fascinating guests. for being on this episode today. I'm super excited to learn more. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Valerie. I'm very excited to come on and and I love uh, connecting with people of different faiths and uh, uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to learn a little bit more about Islam and just your experience as a Muslim in America. I was wondering if first you don't mind just giving a little bit of background about your ancestry. I believe you were born in Massachusetts, if I'm correct. Um, so just if you can talk a little bit about your upbringing as a Muslim in America. Well, it sucked. <laughs> Kidding. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's had its challenges, but you know, um, yeah, born and raised in Massachusetts. Um, I'm not a, I'm not into sports though. You know, I don't love sports, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but their sports is religion. Uh, my parents are, they were born and raised in Egypt, but you know, are ethnically were Middle Eastern mutts, much like many, uh, Caucasians in America. They have many European backgrounds mixed. So we're similar. We have Arab and Turkish and Egyptian. Um, and, uh, yeah, born and raised in Massachusetts and I moved around, uh, to different parts. I was born in Worcester. Uh, at some point, I actually went to Roman Catholic school in Boston uh, for several years when I was a kid. That was actually the first time I taught others about Islam at age seven. Wow. And uh, we can go more into that later. And uh, then I moved to a predominantly Jewish town where you had Orthodox Jews um, who practiced the Sabbath. So I also grew up, uh, spent high school and middle school in uh, Sharon, Massachusetts. And, uh, and after that, I went to university at UMass, Boston, and, uh, and worked at Islamic schools in Massachusetts. And then I went to China for a summer to teach English. And then I went home, packed up my two suitcases and a guitar, and moved to San Francisco to start grad school, where I did my master's in East-West psychology with a focus on spiritual counseling. So there's a little snippet. Oh, and as I learned, Valerie, you're a musician. I also have loved music and uh, play strings and and, uh, produce music in my spare time. That's awesome. Wow, such a life. I feel like you've really lived around in different places and been able to connect with different communities throughout your experience, it sounds like. Um, So you did say it sucked. Is there anything specific you wanted to hit on? (laughs) <laughs> well, right now? It, well, if I can get like a, 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 you know, free three minute therapy here. Sure. So <laughs> I meant it being sarcastic, but you know, some truth there, you know, of course, there were challenges, you know, there were times where uh, it was apparent that I was um, very different from others. And uh, certainly, when 9-11 happened, you know, it was a different ball game. I mean, I was in university at the time. Um, but ever since then, it, there was, you know, this uh, more, I want to say, potent social anxiety that I personally experienced. And then my mother and sister, for instance, they wear the veil mm-hmm. um, like our Virgin Mary. And so whenever we would go out, it was there wasn't a time where, you know, people weren't saying cruel things to us. 
and you know and telling us to go back home and it's like dude i'm from massachusetts you know but yeah. you know that's not that's not what people with that mindset see they just see you know you have a scarf you don't look like me and even though i might know more about american history than you do but you know so there there were those times where it sucked and of course you know experiencing i guess the phrase they use today is islamic islamophobia so yes there was some of that but i also got to say that um there were many um, positive and uh, empowering uh, individuals, uh, Americans and people uh, outside of uh, my faith community or uh, from others who also were demonstrated great support and solidarity at the same time. So that's kind of the beauty of, you know, these types of uh, situations is you always see the sa- the sweet and sour side, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, I do kind of want to talk a little bit more about 9-11 a little bit later, but I'm curious about being a young child um, in the United States um, and if people were respectful to, to you when you were younger and also just if you participated in the call to prayer when you were at school and what that looked like and if people were res- if they were respectful. Well, I'll be honest. I don't remember. Uh, by the call to prayer, you mean did I pray, like try to pray five times a day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I wasn't really doing that when I was in school, um, to be honest. I would usually just kind of pray when I went home um, you know, I wouldn't stop and like leave class to go pray somewhere, let's say in, in middle school and high school. Uh, in college, it was different. In college, I, I did uh, have that space, you know, to be able to go and, and um, uh, connect with the divine five times a day or as much as I could. But I will say that my first experience of perhaps recognizing that I'm Muslim and this is a different faith is uh, I went to Roman Catholic school in Boston um, and it was a you know actually a really good experience I, I don't have anything bad to say about the Catholic Church and my experience there my teacher was a nun I still remember her God rest her soul sister Mary Julia she was a sweetheart and uh, once she actually asked me, she's like, you know, Kareem, I know you're Muslim. Why don't you teach our class about what you believe in Jesus or how you see Jesus? And I was like, okay. And um, at, at the time, I actually remember whenever they would have religion class, I would always sit outside in the hall and read a book. Uh, and that was, I guess, something my parents, you know, requested. Uh, and so during the religion class, I would always sit outside. So already there, I knew I was the only one who would sit outside and be outside during that theology class. Uh, But at the same time, Sister Mary Julia invited me to teach my class about Islam. So for the first time, I was teaching a classroom or others about the religion of Islam. I brought a carpet in and showed them how we pray. I told them, you know, what our understanding of uh, Jesus, peace be upon him, is. Uh, So that was my first kind of vivid experience of uh, distinguishing myself as a different faith, but yet I was embraced. I love that. I love that she brought you in. I feel like that's a really great example of unity too, like reaching out to someone of a different faith and having them come and share their faith and their values and find the similarities. Exactly. And that's what happened. Yeah, no, I love that. And that that kind of, you, you talked a little bit about how you didn't really participate in the call to prayer as much when you were younger because you weren't as devout, which kind of leads to the next thing I wanted to ask is I feel like a lot of people are raised in a faith as a child, but they have their own conversion at some point. So I was wondering if you could just kind of share a little bit about your own conversion. The way I like to look at it, uh, Valerie, is, you know, you're either, you know, uh, 
a Christian of the Church of Latter-day Saints or Muslim or Hindu, by choice or by chance. And if you're born into a family of a particular faith, then you are that faith by chance. But at some point, you know, I think you're right. We need to have some kind of a awakening or conversion uh, in a sense where we now choose this for ourselves. Now, I did identify as Muslim when I was younger, um, you know, but again, even Islamically, you know, you're not... um, Uh, You don't, quote-unquote, have to pray according to sacred law until you come to the age of puberty. So even, you know, four-year-olds are not expected to pray or seven-year-olds and they're not expected to fast and so forth. These are things that happen once you become um, mature. Uh, But it is something that you're exposed to. It is, uh, you know, Islamic culture and knowledge, you know, scripture was something I was exposed to. And clearly I knew I was Muslim and, and this was our identity. I would say, though, in college, um, I'd say my sophomore year, uh, it's kind of when it hit me, I think a little more vividly in the sense of I love studying philosophy. I majored in comparative religion as well as in psychology. So I've always been, you know, interested and intrigued by understanding human beings and the cultures that make us so. Uh, And so I'd say it was about that time where it it really struck me, where I was asking these bigger questions and really asking, like, you know, why am I Muslim? Why aren't I Christian or Hindu or Buddhist or nothing? Um, And really exploring the different worldviews. For instance, you know, the famous book by Houston Smith, who is like a godfather on the study of religion. Uh, He wrote the, you know, The World Religions. It's a very famous book that talks about the seven... Uh, He identifies seven major ones there. Doing my own research and exploring uh, that knowledge for myself uh, brought me to, uh, you know, come to um, my own, let's say, personalized devotion uh, to not only Islam, but world wisdom in general. Because again, I'm the type of guy, I, I would be sitting, you'd find me at the college cafe sitting with a guy who's a, you know, punk rocker atheist to, you know, the Hindu, to a Muslim, to a Catholic, to a Christian, to agnostic. And like, we were literally all hanging out and even talking about religion, theology, philosophy, and, you know, kind of uh, challenging each other, which I actually found quite enjoyable. Uh, And in particular, I had one really close friend until this day, his name's Christopher. Uh, and we still, you know, we we kind of were intellectual, spiritual companions in that sense, where we both challenged and pushed back as well as validated uh, our own exploration and wisdom traditions that we brought to the table. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And and really another great example of, of coming together and finding unity, just because I think sometimes with religion, we feel like it's taboo to talk to people of a different faith or taboo, oh, you don't believe what I believe, I can't talk to you anymore. So I love that you're saying that this this sharing of, of thoughts is kind of what helped you to grow and kind of come to your own faith is what I'm kind of hearing you say. Absolutely. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And on the topic of unity, since this is the theme of your podcast, Valerie, you know, perhaps one way to see it is, I, you know, we're all human beings. Religion is almost like the clothing we wear, right? It's like the style of connecting to the divine or virtue. But ultimately, when you take all the clothes off, we're all made of the same stuff, you follow? And so I think if your religion is not giving you that lens, then, you know, 
it it's it's missing that central point because in a sense you know as the christian tradition says you know we're all god's children and i think there's truth to that in the sense that we are ultimately when you remove the politics and the race and the you know religious identity and the culture we're still the same human family all the children of adam and eve aren't we yeah and i think about like with my own faith we have an article of faith that says if there's anything like praiseworthy virtuous or of good report, we seek after these things. So I think it's really important to be able to like look for that in other faiths because I actually wanted to kind of hit on your podcast really quick because I love the episode you did on how do you see the divine. And I feel like that's a really good example of being able to find something that's virtuous, praiseworthy, coming from a different pers- religious perspective from me, but being able to find the truth behind a lot of things that you shared in that. So just plug for people who are listening. I think it's episode number 67, but I think that's a really great example of being able to reach out and find aspects of truth from different religions. Well, thank you for that, Valerie. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, So how has faith or your upbringing impacted your practice and what you do currently? Yeah, well, I think that since I was a young kid, I was always um, a people's person. I mean, my parents would always tell me like I was the I was the kid in the stroller who's like waving and talking to people at the mall. Um, actually, true story. Once my parents took me to Florida when I was a kid, we were going to Disneyland, and I was very social. I was I was I was chatting it up with this older couple sitting behind me, and you know, God rest their souls. Uh, their names were Bill and Elsie. And they almost became like, you know, my American grandparents because all my extended family was in Egypt. So I never had the, you know, joy of, of growing up with my extended family. But, you know, I was a toddler, Valerie, and these guys became our lifelong friends because of that plane ride. So that's wow. just to give you a sense of like, you know, where I'm at with people and wanting to connect and, and so forth. So that's, I think, always been there. I think that was just kind of my natural direction. But I'd say when I was 16 and I took my first elective class in psychology, I already knew then, oh, I want to study this. And I went into college ex- knowing that. I, I wasn't like, you know, undecided for four years. Or, and then I finally got to my major. Like I, I knew what I wanted to do. And then I also was taking courses on religion and decided, you know what, I got to take so many darn credits anyways, I'm going to just double the major here and do comparative religion because I also had, um, you know, a deep interest in that because I feel like religion in a sense is also, it's all about understanding people and the nature of people, which is what psychology aims to do as well. It's just, you know, with some different, let's say, facets or approaches. Uh, So that was, I'd say, you know, Uh, in short, how my calling came to be. And then, of course, being a child of immigrant parents coming from a a different culture that is a lot more emphasis on the collective and the family, and then growing up in the United States where the emphasis is a lot more on the individual, or at least where I grew up, uh, you know, in the East Coast. So that's, um, I think, you know, it just kind of, as they say, sometimes your purpose isn't about you finding it. It's about it finding you or perhaps, you know, things just kind of coalesce um, and converge in such a way that it becomes clear. Yeah, I love that. I think that, um, so it sounds to me like you're, you're like, as far as impacting your practice, like, like life kind of just gave you and led you to where you, where you are with what you're doing. So I guess, how have you been able to, to use that now with, um, actually, so if you don't mind, maybe just stopping talking a little bit about like what you do exactly 
to kind of help people who are listening kind of have a better understanding of that. Absolutely. So when I graduated undergrad, I worked at uh, school. So I've always been, uh, I loved education. I, I mean, I still love education. I, I was an educator. And at first I actually thought, Valerie, that I wanted to be a professor. Because when I was an undergrad, I used to do teaching assistantships for intro to Islam courses. Like the professors were like, dude, you know your stuff. Like, can you come here and, you know, do this segment for me? Or, uh, you know, can you come and recite Quran for us in Arabic and teach us about that? So I found myself just, again, being called to these positions or opportunities and taking them. And at some point, I was being paid as an undergraduate student to do some of these teaching assistantships. So I, I thought that, you know, maybe my kind of personal skills would be, you know, more about being in the classroom and teaching, which I love and I, I still do. Uh, and after undergrad, I actually taught elementary school. Um, so I got a taste of that. I got a taste of university teaching. I also taught high school, uh, psychology, humanities, history, and did administrative work, some, you know, kind of school counseling uh, work as well when it comes to, you know, career or, you know, some disciplinary stuff. So I, a lot of my professional experience, about five years was heavy or rooted in school settings, private schools, charter schools. And after that, you know, again, people would often say to me, you know, Kareem, you're really good at resolving our issues, or I'd find families coming to me to talk about their kids' academic performance. And then we find ourselves, you know, processing emotion and culture and experience and all this stuff. And, you know, I just decided um, that, you know, why don't I try to do counseling and coaching and mentoring, like for real, but like on my own, because, you know, as you know, education and the school systems are not always a, um, they can be a risky profession, you know, a school shuts down, they don't have funding, whatever, right? Uh, there's politics. And so that's what made me decide to start Nude Human Consulting. And my main reason for that was, you know, growing up, there were so many times I wish I had someone to talk to, to process my stuff. You know, there were things I was doing that I couldn't go to my parents to talk about because you know how it is. There's always things your parents just don't know. Right. And it's best that way. <laughs> and so, you know, I thought, you know, that that's a problem that needs to be solved. I found myself fulfilling that role. And my focus has been working with the Muslim community as my main focus. I mean, I'm not limited to that, but the majority of uh, the people I've worked with have been from that community. And it's simply because, you know, we don't have um, as many resources for mental health, well-being, human science. In fact, many um, aspects of our population, even the ones in the United States, uh, still have kind of a stigma towards mental health and all they think about is Freud and oh we don't need this all you need is God and pray more and you know maybe you've heard similar things with with other communities but so I was like no 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 we really need this because people don't understand that like you can't just pray more when you have a porn addiction or when you're you don't know how to communicate and resolve issues with your wife or you're you're rushing into a marriage because your parents want you to do as soon as possible because they don't want you having sex before marriage but then you end up divorced because you didn't really nourish getting to know the person right everyone was just trying to fulfill these religious laws without recognizing guys the law of religion must it's only as effective as you keep the spirit within that law otherwise it's just dry replicating mechanistic practice ritual or you know dogma even that 
people yeah, just keep absolutely. producing. So, you know, sorry for my long-winded answers, but, you know. No, I, I love it. Okay, so I love what you shared, and I think that's so important for, for people, especially of faith. I think it's so hard for people to find people who are within their, like, it's hard to find a therapist sometimes who are within their faith construct. So, like, there are some therapists that may really negate God, and so if someone, or Allah, and so if someone goes to a therapist and they feel like they're not being validated religiously, that can be really tricky. So I think that's awesome that you're providing that for people so that they can kind of have this, like, faith-based counseling. I mean, for you, Valerie, as somebody of faith and as someone who studied psychology, do you feel like Mm -hmm. your psychology and spirituality are like two sides of the same coin? In other words, your mental health is also, you know, highly impacted by your spiritual health. Would you say that's uh, true for you as well? I would say for me personally, it is. But I've also found a lot of um, similarities between, for me personally, like therapeutic modalities and religion. Like to me, they support each other. Um, in some ways and in some ways they're different, but yeah, no, I for sure see that, um, they, they impact mental health for sure. And I think they're both really important and valuable parts of a person. Um, so I, and so that's kind of what I, what I wanted to go to next is I know you have a lot of clients who are of your faith, but how do you navigate working with people who may have a different belief system than you? I, I never really found it uh, a problem, um, you know, with Christians, with Hindus, with people who just like believe in God, but they don't ascribe to a particular organized religion. Um, and I think that because ultimately, you know, the sessions aren't about exploring, uh, you know, theology per se, or, or arguing about, you know, which scripture is, you know, right or wrong or anything like that. It's more about referring to um, a set of values that the people holds dear. And the good news is, is that most people and most religions have a lot of the same values, if not all of them. It's just a matter of, let's say, method or, or let's say, focus. Um, but I mean, I've never talked to somebody of another faith who's like, yeah, being an honest uh, person is 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 not important. Or, you know, considering the fact that I do consciously hold that I will meet my creator one day, you know, when this when this is all said and done. And that actually affects the way I deal with things now. I mean, it doesn't matter at that point if you're a Christian or, or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu, because there is this idea of, of karma in the end of the day, right? About your deeds matter. And and so, you know, I feel like when again, when you get past the clothing, you you ultimately just still see the same flesh 
blood and bones that make us all up. And so, you know, I haven't had a problem with that also because I just, I have a little bit of knowledge about other religions. I'm no expert by any means, but, you know, if I can quote the Bhagavad Gita or I can quote passages from the Bible, I can, you know, and there are so many things that are relatable. And, you know, I actually, I'm working with a Jewish couple right now. Uh, And so, you know, that's how I've been able to navigate it because I don't come across as peop- as a person who's like, you know, you have to be Muslim or this is, you know, we're going to be quoting the Quran all day here. Uh, you know, in, in fact, with many Muslims, we're not even doing that because it's about human, it's about becoming a better human being. And for some, Islam or their religion will play a heavier role. And for some, it's maybe more of an extension of their culture. So I also work with people based on where they're at, right? I, I'm, I'm never like trying to make somebody more devout or more religious i try to unless that's something they want to work on but you know i hope that answers your question no i think that does and i think that really fits like client self-determination and really meeting people where they're at and not projecting your own values and beliefs on someone i love that you said you really just try to meet people where they're at because i think that's like what any good therapist life coach that's what any good individual should do right is meet people where they're at humanistic existential psychology is is really you know my approach i'd say yeah i love that um i kind of want to shift a little bit and talk a little bit about um what you had mentioned earlier with 9-11 and just racism in general um and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about a little bit more about racism bigotry in your life or in your profession but also um if you feel, and I'm curious because I know you mentioned after 9-11, you really noticed it a lot. Do you feel like it was sig- a significant issue before 9-11 or do you feel like there was a turning point? And you, I feel like I'm asking a lot of questions right now. So maybe we'll stop there and then I can kind of continue. But I think I'm following and maybe, you know, did I notice it before 9-11? Yes. Um, because think about it. I mean, in the 80s, I mean, my mom definitely noticed it when she came here in the 80s. You know, there was the whole um, Iran hostage problem. Uh, the revolution just happened in 79. So there was, you know, that was, uh, you know, part of the cinema at the time. If you go watch any movies like Rambo, right? Famous Rambo. It's like, mm. I guess the one of the ways I saw it was it was very common to see Muslims and specifically Arabs as the bad guys, right? Before that, maybe it was the Russians and the communists, you know, but then Mm -hmm. it was like, all right, it's the, you know, it's our turn kind of thing. And and of course it's impacted by the politics of the uh, geopolitics of the age. And then of course, desert storm, right? The nineties, George Bush. Um, I was uh, in Catholic school at the time when that was happening. I was about 10 years old, I think in 91. Yeah. Uh, and, and after that, um, we got Clinton and then we got the other George Bush for eight years. So there was more of that. Right. Uh, and then finally Obama came (laughs) that, that was, um, a little more of a relief, let's say. So there, that's how I kind of felt it, right? Is like every time I'm watching a movie with my friends, it's like, yeah, you know, let's kill Ahmed. And it's like, dude, that's my dad's name, you know? But it's like in the movie, that's the enemy. And so it's like I sometimes feeling kind of torn. Like, am I American? Am I Muslim? Am I Middle Eastern? Can I be all at the same time? 
because clearly there are things that my Muslimness says I, you know, should be doing or not doing, and then my Americanness is calling me to do, and then there's, you know, Kareem in between. But I'd say after 9-11, it just became a lot more palpable. You know, there was Islamophobia in the air. You know, alhamdulillah, I'd never experienced anything too violent or aggressive. It was more just name-calling and emotional abuse or, you know, even, um, let's say, um, um, when I was 12, I remember I actually did a history fair and uh, and it was all about Salahuddin al-Ayyubi or better known as Saladin who was one of the, um, he was a king at the time of the Crusades. It's a famous historical story, him and King Richard the Lionheart from England and I was really into history so I actually did my project on that and what's so interesting is I had a partner, he was a buddy of mine, I won't name him, um, and, you know, really great guy, you know, we were 12, uh, but it's because I was, you know, what's fascinating, just to get this point, is the whole project was about Islamic history, and um, I did all the work, it was one of those friends who just wrote along for the for the grade, but in the end, Valerie, the awards for our project actually went to him and not to me. Which was which I thought was hilarious, but I mean, at the time I was really distraught. Of wow. course, I was twelve, and really sad. Yeah. Uh, but it was like stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, there's a bunch of things that like that where you would just be like, "What the heck is going on here? Is this like?" And I didn't know it was, you know, perhaps bigotry or discrimination at the time. I just thought like, "What the heck is this?" Is because this kid has connections or his everyone knows his parents or something. I don't know. Uh, and then later, of course, it was after 9-11, it just became um, uh, a lot more palpable in the air. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like I said, there was always countermeasures of good and unity um, with the darkness and separation and bigotry that also existed. So, you know, not, you know, there, there I feel like it was a good balance. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you mentioned like different presidents and kind of the feeling around like different or maybe the sentiment that was spread about um, people who are Muslim or from the Islamic faith during that time. Do you still feel like you were able to find um, these moments of, of unity through different presidents? Or I guess, how do you feel like unity was found in those moments? I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot for that, but I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, definitely, it wasn't about, it wasn't, there was no unity because of the presidents. I was just commenting, given that, you know, the, from the top down, it creates a political and emotional view yeah. of things and the people in your nation, right? And I was just suggesting that, you know, since I, I was born in 81, so since, you know, the 80s, 90s, and until today, um, you know, there is a big role around politics, media, and representation um, of of Muslims, of Islam, which, you know, I always say we have the worst religious branding in the world because of, you know, how things are. And some of it is because of knuckleheads who do stupid things that associate with our religion, yeah. for sure. It was just really weird when, you know, you're like, for example, like I'm hanging out with a bunch of friends we're having a barbecue and, you know, sometimes there's people at these things that are friends with your friends, but they don't know you. And, you know, people show up with shirts like Blow Up Mecca, Barbecue Baghdad. Wow. And I got to pretend like I'm just enjoying the cheeseburger because, you know, if I, you know, I'm the only Muslim yeah. guy there. So, I, I, you know, so it's best to not bring it up with Tommy and Jimmy. Right. And it's like so, you know, stuff like that where I, you know, I, I want to say there was a lot of moments or experiences of yeah. social alienation when I was trying to just 
quote-unquote be like everybody else but I guess you know looking back um, I wasn't like everybody else and that's not actually a problem for me anymore because being like everybody else isn't actually my goal but uh, you know I'm just talking about those experiences so there is that political I think force that comes from it but that doesn't necessarily apply to your neighbor's and your friends and, you know, people at your school or professors. Uh, and like I've said, I've seen a lot of beauty and and efforts of unity uh, from individuals uh, along the way as well. And that's why I'm still here and I'm doing what I'm doing and speaking to you today, right? Yeah, no, yeah, I love that. And I do find it interesting too what you said about the media, how there's so many, because I also have seen, especially since 9-11, so many movies where like the evil person is someone who is stereotypically like Islamic, which is so interesting to me that it's Hollywood putting that out because I feel like, um, you know, sometimes they vocally will be like, Oh, that's horrible. But then they're kind of doing that in movies. <laughs> so <laughs> I find that really interesting, but, um, I love what you said and how like, um, that you're, you have this effort to try to bring unity and understanding. I think that's the biggest thing too, is like you said, there's so much misunderstanding And so thank you again for being on this and talking about that. And I wanted to kind of segue into um, like, what advice would you have for, for other Muslims in America that are struggling daily, maybe with this? And then, yeah, how did you kind of get past the stereotypes? Because you said, yeah, I've realized I don't need to be like other people. So what advice would you give for them? Well, first of all, I I think that any person of faith, Muslim or not, is really know your tradition, whatever it is. Because there's many people that ascribe to religion, but they're not quite, uh, they don't really understand it that well themselves. You know, like I, I've I've seen this with myself. I've seen it with others. You know, if you just kind of, ask certain questions or probe, you know, sometimes people don't know why they believe something or they were taught to believe something. Um, And I think that that's the first thing is when you feel more confident and comfortable with your own sound knowledge of your tradition, then it becomes less likely or threatening for somebody to say, oh, your religion is this or you people are like that. And well, you know what, you know, I know a thing or two about my religion and yours. So why don't we talk about this? Because you know, it turns out that the Bible has more violence. You know, if we want to talk about violence, you know, passages, there's technically more violence mentioned in the Bible than, uh, let's say, the Quran, you know. And so the point here is not about winning. It's about self-awareness and that stereotypes, racism, discrimination tends to come from darkness. And so it's about putting the light on knowledge and on human hearts and recognizing that if you do believe in God, we all came from God, right? And we're all going back to God. And I think that that has to be the main strand of any religious community, especially in their efforts to have interfaith or bridging um, unity between the different faiths. Yeah. And I feel like that goes along with what you were saying earlier. Like we need to know our own faiths and not just go through the motions because going through the motions isn't going to help us feel the heart behind it. What do you feel like has been helpful as people have talked to you, maybe asking you questions about your faith? um, What's been helpful and what has not been helpful when people have like asked? And this is kind of coming from curiosity. Like, is there anything that's like really dumb that people shouldn't be saying in case they have a conversation with someone, you know? Um, Yeah. So what feedback or advice can you give on that? Uh, Honestly, I think, 
instead of listing specific things, right? I think the best way to put that, Valerie, is um, when we ask a question that automatically puts the other person on defensive mode, right? That's already just not a good place to start um, unity yeah. dialogue, mm -hmm. right? So for instance, you know, when someone says, why do you treat women like this? Why are you saying you? Because it's like you're addressing me, right? Or like whenever there's terror, you know, terrorism is like, oh, all the Muslims have to come out and apologize for this. It's like, why? Yeah. Why is that the case? And that's not what happens when Americans kill innocent people or Christians kill innocent people. And, you know, religion isn't associated when an actual Christian guy right. kills people. You know, we didn't, we didn't hear Christianity when New Zealand was shot up or other things happen, right? Yeah, or I just think about like when people like, you know, you know, put a bomb in an abortion clinic, like that to me is so you don't sit there and attack like, oh, all Christians are doing that. So I hear what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. You just read that John, you know, John Smith did this, but they don't emphasize like he's a very devout Christian who goes to church every Sunday, for instance, yeah. right? I mean, maybe sometimes, yeah. right? But the point here is that, you know, when you pose questions in such a way where it's almost like a criticism, like, why are you doing this? Why do you treat women like this? Why is Islam like this? You know, these types of common points of, of argument or let's say, you know, points that are picked on with any faith, right? And I'm sure, you know, there's versions of that for every religion. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, there's a difference between, I think, just starting from, you know, the, uh, the central tenets and ideas is more important than talking now. Because I'll tell you, Valerie, it's really hard to explain to somebody the difference between Muslim culture and traditions versus the variety of Islamic religious institutions and um, intellectual contributions. I mean, it's just not that simple to go, you know, yeah. you know, why is, why are all Mormons like this? Or why yeah. do you, you know, because it's like me totally saying, why, do you, why yeah. do you guys, yeah, like, it's like me saying to you, Valerie, are you going to be, um, you know, one of multiple wives one day to a yeah. guy that you're going to marry? Because yeah. that would be, you know, incorrect to say. And it's like, you know, it's just not the right place to start. I would want to start with, you know, like I do actually with, um, you know, the brothers who would come from the Church of Latter-day Saints, we would sit down, have granola bars and some juice and read the Book of Mormon and talk about it. And that's the best way for me to learn about Mormonism, uh, the Book of Mormon, excuse me. And they also, you know, for instance, learned that how to say God in the language of Jesus is actually a lot closer to uh, Arabic than most people know. Right. And so the idea, for example, of like, you know, God being a, a different thing, it's like, no, God is just a Germanic word yeah. for for the divine. Allah is the Arabic or Semitic word. And what language did Jesus speak, Valerie? Do you know? Hebrew, right? Am I wrong? Aramaic, okay. which is Aramaic, Hebrew, Arabic um, are all part of the same family. That's why they sound similar. They're all Semitic languages. But he spoke Aramaic, according to most uh, religious Christian scholars uh, on that. And you know how you say God in Aramaic? I feel like I just read something, actually, but it's very similar to Allah, is it not? That's right. It's yeah. Ilaha. It's Ilaha. Ilaha, right? So, you know, things like that was, it's just so nice to have those experiences, right? Like when I was with these young men and it's like, wow, like their eyes are like, whoa, like I didn't know that. And it's like, yeah. And we both are, you know, we both revere and love Jesus and want to follow his path, right? And so I feel like, you know, remembering just to break bread, 
to be peaceful, to invite, you know, to share, to listen. And, you know, I think that's, you know, the key here and not to ask offensive, stereotypical uh, questions that are phrased in such a way where you're already cornering the person to feel defensive or like you're already, you know, from this really weird or backwards you know, worldview. And so how do you defend, how do you justify that? And it's like, excuse me, you know, and I'll give you a simple example just to close my comment here is I was actually doing an interfaith program at a mosque or a masjid, which is the the accurate word, the masjid um, in San Francisco a couple of years back. And a, a school came to come to the masjid and ask questions about Islam. And, you know, these were young kids, 10, 10 year olds, 11, 12 year olds, you know, fifth to seventh grade, I'd say. And, you know, I got some of those questions. Like I was the speaker or, you know, the person there. And, you know, I did get that question of like, how come your women, how come you guys force women to wear the veil? How come, you know, it's like, first of all, that's not even the the case. Okay. But the point here is they would, they asked all these kind of stereotypical questions or at least a couple of them. And I even noticed some of the teachers, they were like, you know, feeling a little awkward because they knew that those questions were so Fox, you know, Fox News type questions, but they were just little kids. They don't know any better. I wasn't blaming them. And instead of addressing the questions, Valerie, this is what I said to them. I said, guys, look around this room right now. What do you see? Kids who are African-American, Asian, Caucasian, you know, Latin descent, look around. Guess what, guys? 60, 70 years ago, all of you would not be in the same classroom. You wouldn't be able to drink at the same water fountain, eat at the same restaurants. That's here in the United States of America, the land of the free. So before you think you got to figure out why somebody else's culture or worldview is wrong, you know, also be aware that every place, every nation, every community has a history of beautiful things and ugly things. Nobody nobody is outside of that, right? And that instead of feeling like we've got it all figured out and we got to go civilize these people or understand why they're uncivilized, you know, it's like that was, you know, a way that I approached that very, you know, way of addressing that question, right? And But then I went into explaining things a little more you know, as a beautiful cartoon said once, it shows on one side, maybe you've seen it, Valerie, on one side, it shows a woman in a bikini with with sunglasses on. And on the right side, it shows a woman in full on uh, veil, like even covering her face. Okay. And both of them are kind of leaning their heads back and they have a cloud where their thoughts are. So they're both judging each other, right? The woman in the bikini is looking at the Muslim woman and going, oh my God, that woman is just covered from head to toe. You can only see her eye. You you can only see her eyes. How oppressed is she, right? And then the Muslim lady is looking at the bikini lady and going, oh my God, this woman is completely undressed except her eyes are covered. How oppressed is this woman, right? So, you know, there is of course relativity. And I don't think that the truth with a capital T is possessed by one person or even one community, but rather God is the truth with a capital T. And we have many truths. So the idea here is that there's, you know, cultural relativity, there's uh, relativity to truth. Now, I wouldn't say that I take that, you know, too far, because certainly I do believe there are things to be more true than other things, right? I don't, I don't actually think everybody is always true and always right all the time, or else, you know, then that means nobody can be wrong, which means nobody can be right. 
and now we're just, you know, getting nowhere. When it comes to exploring and understanding and coming to know one another, uh, my advice and feedback is if you're genuine and sincere and want to learn and recognize you have nothing to lose by learning about other people's cultures, faiths, or the way they think or their experiences. Uh, and the way I see it is if you're so certain in your path, then you shouldn't feel threatened anyways. Right. And so I think that it's a sign when you're not quite rooted or let's say substantiated in your old worldview that you don't like it when people challenge your ideas or your theology or question things or aren't sure about something. Because I've seen that as a opportunity for myself. When someone's like, hey, why does Islam say this? Or what's going on here? Or even things I've learned my own time, right? And I'm like, what's this all about? Instead of going, oh, forget it, I, I, this is all wrong, or I don't believe in this, or what's going on with this? It's like, well, let me try to understand the meaning. And even if I don't understand the meaning, and certainly this comes more with age, it's okay because I, I, I believe that part of the glory of the divine is that there's always going to be some level of mystery in our existence and lives. Because let's face it, you know, you and I, we don't even know what we think about things half the time or what we understand about ourselves fully all the time. It's a lifelong journey. So it's very challenging to assume we can know what God thinks or understand every nuance of the physical and metaphysical realities, you know, that exist, you know. So I think that being humble and open and recognizing we're all part of the same family once you remove all the clothing of politics and history and culture and, and, and creed. And that's a great place to start uh, to get us closer, inshallah, to practical ways of unifying as humankind. Yeah, I completely agree. Being able to look at each other's brothers and sisters, because at the end of the day, like you said, that's what we are, you know? Um, so I love that. I just, I want to ask you, I feel like, I feel like you just answered this question, but I just want to give you an opportunity if you have anything you want to add to this, um, is how you found unity with those of different faiths and backgrounds from your own. And again, I feel like you just answered, but I want to give you an opportunity if there's anything else you wanted to share on that. Well, I, I'll keep this one a bit more simple and it's, it's a practice. It's a cognitive practice, if you will, which is the following, Valerie. When I meet somebody or look into their eyes, you know, I remember that God chose for them to be here. Just like he chose for me to be here, for you to be here, for Donald Trump to be here. If anybody is here, it's because God chose us to be here. Am I wrong? No, yeah, I love that. Right? So so I feel like just starting on that cognitive frame um, perhaps can help soften or expand your heart to receive the humanity before you. Because if you're you know, projecting your own stereotypes or assumptions or judgments right off the bat, you know, and again, there is a time and place for judging and assuming things, right? Because that's part of our way of processing information as well, right? In fact, without judgment, humans wouldn't survive. And, you know, that's a whole other podcast. But um, yeah. so, so I think just remembering that God chose this person to be here. And as the Dalai Lama said, you know, all, or I'll paraphrasing, he says, you know, all living beings tremble before death. Right. In the end of the day, we're all fragile uh, creatures and we are spiritual beings having a human experience, not not human beings having a spiritual 
experience. A quote of a Christian theologian and philosopher, um, Jean-Pierre Deschardins, I believe, uh, was his name. Uh, and this is just captures it perfectly. You know, we're spiritual beings having a human experience, not human beings having a spiritual experience. And this also teaches us, Valerie, that when, you know, our time is up here, you know, you, Valerie and Kareem, we continue. We just don't continue in the same fashion or form as we are here in the body. But we are spirits with a body, not bodies with a spirit. So that's another thing that I, I try to you know, remember and be conscious of when I meet new people or the same people and remember that, you know, those facts, you know, that we're all going to, um, we're all going to end up in the same place. We're all going to end up in the ground. We're also, our souls are also going to continue on in the way that it will. And at that point, while it's already, you know, too late to change <laughs> any decisions or choices, but at the same time, we're all going to know everything we need to know once we're all there. So let's just hope we're um, working towards the good place uh, as much as possible, no matter who we are, where we're from. Yeah, let's just do good. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so something I like to ask everyone on this podcast um, is what does unity mean to you? Unity means to me. Unity, perhaps, to me, means seeing everything as one interconnected, interdependent, seeing the one that possesses the many and that the many makes up the one. Uh, in other words, to give a simple analogy, it's like, Valerie, you are one person. However, your body has, um, you know, trillions of cells and, you know, neurons and uh, those make up you know, and those themselves are little factories doing all kinds of little jobs for you. They make up organs, which you have many of, and that makes up functions and jobs that keeps you alive and functioning. And then that all makes up your body, and then your body has these limbs. So, you know, this is a very fascinating principle that I've also learned from my studies in theology, right, is that they're, the many make up the one, and the one make up the many. In other words, things can be... Um, their own entities, but together they also create or generate a whole other larger whole entity. And so unity to me is never forgetting that that's how it all works. And the moment we fixate on just the liver or the cell or the strand of hair, we are now compartmentalizing and perhaps opening up the gateway for more fragmentation segregation, separation. And this is now where we get racism and stereotypes and discrimination because ultimately it's about feeling like you're not familiar. You don't belong here. You're not like me. You don't eat the foods I do. So you're other. And that is contrary perhaps to unity. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and thank you again so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Valerie, for having me. I appreciate it. And it was lovely, uh, you know, discussing these points. Thank you.